Today on The Black Goat, we discuss trying to study cause and effect when you can't do an experiment with the guidance of an article by Julia Rohrer, and a letter about applying to psych grad programs with a background in computer science. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And uh, for the first time in a long time, I'm recording from my home office uh, because we, like I think a lot of universities, are on extreme social distancing mode because of the coronavirus crisis. And so uh, I have not seen much more than the interior walls of my house for about the last five or six days. How about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of in a strange situation. Well, Samin and I, in combination, especially strange. So I'm at Samin's house, but Samin is not here with me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm doing sort of like a, a yeah, I'm not super strict um, containment here, but I think Samin's containment is more severe. Yeah, so I flew to Australia, and so that I self-quarantined for 14 days after flying, so I'm still in that period. Um, I do go out for walks, but no, not anywhere around other people. Um, yeah, it's been interesting. Yeah, I should say for people listening, we're uh, we're record. We always put the record date in the show notes, um, uh, but I feel like it's especially relevant because things yeah. are just fucking changing every so single fast. day. So, so we're recording this on Monday, March sixteenth, at about three p.m. and Tuesday, March seventeenth. And to oh yes, yeah, so, sorry, that's that's West Coast U.S. time and uh, Tuesday uh, in Australia. And and who knows? It's it's been really unsettling and disorienting. I mean, this is the other thing is we often don't talk about current events on the podcast, but it feels I can't imagine not bringing this up on the podcast. It's just like it's completely present and a little bit overwhelming. To be honest, Mm -hmm. I woke up just 20 minutes before we were supposed to start recording. And so I haven't had a chance to call either of my parents. So that makes me super nervous because they're both like my mom's in Palo Alto where apparently I just didn't have, you didn't have time to read the news, but Alex told me they're on lockdown in Silicon Valley. And then my dad's in Tehran. So he's been on lockdown for a while and Mm -hmm. they're both living not nowhere near family or, you know, no one's around. So I've been trying to call them every day and it's yeah, super nerve wracking, which I'm sure everyone with their elderly family members feels the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My, my parents are, uh, my, my parents are in New Jersey. They're on lockdown in their house. I think they, uh, they've, you know, they're both age-wise and health condition-wise, you know, pretty vulnerable. Actually, my cousin, uh, who lives pretty close to them, uh, dropped off some food for them the other day, and he uh, said, I'm not even going to come in the house. I'm going to uh, drop it off on your front porch. So he brought some groceries for my parents, left them on the front porch. Uh, my mom left him a box of baked goods sitting on the front porch for him to pick up and take with him. Uh, so, you know, they're being careful. Um, and then uh, my, my, my wife, Kristen, uh, read her parents the riot act. And so now they're uh, isolating as well. Um, mm-hmm. This is, I, I was wondering about this. Uh, um, there's obviously other things going on, but uh, I, I was wondering how much introversion extroversion is going to play into people's vulnerabilities. Cause my parents are, are fairly introverted and so they're just like, yeah, okay, we'll hang out at home. We do that all the time anyway. And, and mm-hmm. Kristen's parents are like, you know, the the opposite dispositionally. Um, uh, I don't know. This I feel like this is like not the most important issue to be <laughs> studying right now. But it's I was, as a personality I, psychologist, I don't have much to contribute to like virology or any of that. So this is like yeah. what I can come up with. I was um, thinking about that too this morning because my friend Jillian, who is um, in Alabama right now is yeah, pretty much like isolating herself from other people. And she texted me this morning and she was like, I think this works out well for introverts. I realized that I'm doing exactly what I would have done anyways <laughs> on this day, um, where I'm like, not going to interact with any people. Um, and I had, I mean, our circumstances are very different, but, um, I had the thought that that is not at all true of me. <laughs> like my, my day would be dramatically different. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, what you guys said about the 
the mood, I mean, um, so I'm planning on basically like going back to Tuscaloosa as soon as I can. Um, and there's like a, some pragmatic elements to that, but the biggest thing for me is that like, it feels like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It feels very like apocalyptic in some ways. And it feels so strange to not be at home, even though this, like, even though Simeon's house is like, um, like almost like a home away from home at this point, but it's still like, feels very strange to not, um, be in familiar territory. And I mean, there's no perfect solution because it feels strange also not to be, um, around my parents, um, who were planning on meeting me in Tuscaloosa when I came home from California. Um, but now they won't meet me, of course. Um, so I won't see them until, um, until I'm not sure when, when the world goes back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was supposed to, um, go visit my parents at the end of this week. And we, uh, called off that trip and yeah, it's like, I, on the one hand, I think it was the right call. And, and on the other hand, you know, I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, when am I going to be able to see them again? And, mm-hmm. and um, because who knows how long this is going to last and, and how long it's going to be risky. And, you know, the, the, the thought of, you know, initially, like, you know, when this stuff first started developing, I was thinking like, maybe I should just, you know, go anyway, because, you know, um, yeah, because who, who knows when I'm going to see them. And I, I do think it was the right call not to go, but it's, uh, I think so many people are in some or another version of this where, you know, whether it's people you live with, people you don't live with, you know, et cetera, it's just such, uh, um, you know, it's just creating all kinds of, of those, those scenarios. And then of course there's people who are in much more direct, risk and danger economically and and you know because of their jobs they work at jobs where they might you know retail jobs service jobs where they might lose their their jobs i have a lot of friends who work in healthcare in various capacities and they're both probably about to get pulled into this and then also going to be exposed to very high risk themselves um sorry i i i i feel like uh I want to keep it light because it's the podcast, but this is just, it feels like a really heavy time right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely feel like I don't know where I'm supposed to be. Like, am I supposed to stay in Australia? Am I supposed to go be with my mom or stay away from my mom? Or And then, yeah, the scariest part for me is I think no one can go be with my dad if he gets sick, which is super likely because Iran is one of the most affected places and no one can get to him. And I think I think I found the limits of my dad's low neuroticism. Like he's, he wasn't freaked out when Iran shut down the internet. He wasn't freaked out when the U S killed Soleimani, but I think he's pretty freaked out now. And it's Mm -hmm. sad and scary not to be able to do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's this weird situation where, um, you want to like, yeah, be around the people that you care about, but also you can be like a threat to the people that you, care about yeah yeah Yeah, i mean the you know we're trying to do what we can we're we've been you know skyping a lot more with family members um you know yeah we've been i mean we've been spending my immediate family my my partner and kid we've been spending a lot more time together uh so far, that's that's a bit of a plus. We'll see. <laughs> There's this article going around about uh, how the divorce rate in China spiked. And I'm like, oh, you know, I, I'm not worried about that with my family. But it it just sort of drove home, like, even even those upsides, it's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe we're going to be pretty tired of each other in a couple of weeks, um, maybe sooner than that. I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to do what we can. Um, uh, it's also, I, do you do you guys have this... I, I feel like the um, I'm trying really hard in my mind to separate social inactivity from physical inactivity. So I'm trying to like not go to places where other people are. Um, and I'm realizing that that defaults to just like being in my sweats all day inside my house. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah. I haven't, I haven't, 
I think the last time I worked out was a week ago today. And, and even then I was like, should I be here at the gym? And I was like, okay, I'm not going back to the gym anymore. Um, yeah. And, and I'm like, but I can go running and go for walks and things like that. But it's just somehow in my mind, like if I'm, yeah, if, if I'm not going to go to work, uh, then I just sort of turn into a sloth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that like going to, um, places that involve groups of people working out is like a big part of most people's workout routine. So I think like, um, like while I had been in Davis, I had been going, um, to a yoga studio and stuff. And obviously I'm not going to do that now. Um, so finding, but yeah, I mean, I have the same thing as you Sanjay where I'm like, I could be just like running each day or whatever. And, but for um, me, part of the laying around in sweats is also the stress. Like I feel like it's not just the fact that I'm supposed to stay at home that's making me lazy. It's also like I feel overwhelmed. I feel like yeah. at least for a few days, I'm just gonna like do the do what I have to do, my obligations. But like I'm not doing much more than that, and I'm going easy on myself because it it does feel yeah very stressful. Yeah, and I don't even I mean, have. I don't even have kids or, you know, like I can't imagine for people for whom they also have to care for other people or now have all these like duties because school is closed or things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that as soon as, so I, I have this thing, this cycle I get into with working out with just my energy levels where I don't have enough energy to work out and then I work out and I have more energy and I'm like, oh, why didn't I do this like three weeks ago or whatever? I have a feeling the stress workout, which I definitely resonate with what you're saying, Samin. I have a feeling if I finally drag my ass out the door and go for a run, I'm going to feel better about it. If, if only yeah. because I can't look at Twitter while I'm running. <laughs> you know, like I, I mean, that's been another thing. Like social media is such a double-edged sword because I feel like especially now it's a connection to other people. But I just get like trapped on Twitter where I just keep making myself more anxious. I, I posted this uh, tweet the other day that was like, it was a joke, but it was also real. It was like, you know, uh, anxiety leads to vigilance, vigilance leads to Twitter, Twitter leads to anxiety, and it just keeps going around and around. And, and that really is like, it's so easy to get just like stuck in that loop. Um, I, I feel like I need to like force myself to break it from time to time. Uh, yeah. It's so hard to. Yeah, I have... Um yeah, I have maybe the opposite impulse of like when I start to feel um feel like anxious and um like I'm sort of like spiraling or whatever. My like my urge is to like go out for a run or whatever. I have no interest in I mean you guys know that I generally don't have much interest in in hanging out on Twitter, but like right now that sounds terrible. That is so well adjusted, Alexa. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think like Twitter is one way to be like really informed. Um, and even just like trying to follow the news really carefully, it's like, um, it feels like there's so much to stay on top of, right? Like, there's like what you specifically should be doing. Like, it's like, what direction are things going? Um, things are so different in different places. Um, so I think like, yeah, it's hard to, I'm a little avoidant in terms of, um, I guess, like, not wanting to get sucked into every detail. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like I've really appreciated Twitter, both for the information, which I do feel like people who aren't, people I know who aren't on Twitter seem to know less about what's going on. And then, but also the jokes, like, there's some people I just, like, want to, like, send them money or something, because I feel like the jokes about coronavirus on Twitter are, like, making it so much better for me. Like, I don't know, Kieran Healy had a joke about like what his memoir is going to be called. And I can't remember all three of the uh, titles that he suggested, but one of them was a zoom of one's own, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So like, I'm so pre I actually, yeah, I tend to stop posting when I'm experiencing negative affect, but I still read it and it still brings me a lot. And then I feel like guilty that I'm like social loafing on Twitter. Um, but I really appreciate the people who are still tweeting both the information, but also just the like lighthearted stuff. I, I, it's, I know this is not going to shock anybody, but it's shocked me that I love the pictures of all the pets right now. Um, like normally I like them. Okay. But right now I'm like really appreciative that people are posting all these funny pictures of their pets. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 
<laughs> it's helpful to have that just like break and connection. Well, should we, uh, uh, should we maybe ourselves uh, break away from coronavirus and do a, do our letter of the week? Maybe try to, it's about uh, uh, something forward thinking and potentially <laughs> positive. Yes, that's good. A positive distraction. Yes. Um, okay. Dear Goats, I'm planning to apply for grad programs during the next application round, and I have some questions regarding applications to psych grad programs. First, I'm wondering how accepting psych grad programs are of people from other majors. I have a background in computer science and currently work as a data scientist, so I have a certain level of quantitative skills. Would taking the GRE subject test help with the application? Second, how much are recommendation letters valued? And how important is it to have a letter writers who have a background in psych? Personally, I think recommendation letters are, are a big source of bias. I've heard that it can really help boost your chances if you have a well-respected person in the field or are a, a person who graduated from a renowned institution write the recommendation letter for you. Sincerely, Anonymous from Southeast Asia. Um, so I... I like this letter because, first of all, I think it asks interesting questions about how um, applicants from non-psychology programs are viewed when applying to um, to graduate school. Um, but also, I think the it raises interesting questions, which we could probably talk about for a long time. And I think we have talked about this a little bit in the past about um, recommendation letters and how valued they are um, during the process. Um I'm curious what you guys think, but my my first intuition about having a computer science background and applying to psychology grad school right now, it probably um, positions you quite well for at least for certain kinds of labs or programs, um, because it seems like increasingly necessary to have um, to have computer science skills to be able to like be a psychology researcher. Period. Um, so for, like if I were considering a student, um, I would value that quite a bit, I think. Um, yeah. And I think you guys have considered these things too, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, it, it so much depends on what kind of work this person wants to do and where they're applying, right? Like, a, you know, if you're applying to a lab that does qualitative research or something like that, or, or, you know, these skills may not be relevant everywhere or as relevant everywhere. Um, although even qual research, there's, there's certainly a lot of data science stuff, but yeah, no, I mean, the more, if you're applying to a lab that's doing data science -y kind of stuff, and that's more and more of them, um, uh, you know, that would certainly be true of my lab. Like if, if I got an application from someone working as a data scientist with a CS background, that would, you know, that would stand out to me in a, in a positive way. And I think that's true of a lot of places. So I, you know, I feel like it's always been kind of the case that like, if you don't have a psychology background, but you do have a back background in a field that's relevant to what you're doing, that can be at least as good. Like if you had a bio background and you're applying to a neuroscience lab or something, that's yeah. probably going to help. And, and this feels like this is going to be relevant to a lot of people. Yeah, that was um, the situation sort of m not quite as like maybe different than this person's situation. Um, but when I was applying to psychology programs, I was interested in applying to social psychology grad programs and I had never taken a social psychology class. So I had a de my degree was in like uh, physiology and psychology. Um, and so that was one thing that my um, my now former advisor, Mickey, was like paid attention to was that he felt like the fit in terms of my training wasn't perfect, um, but that I had this like biology knowledge that might be useful or whatever. Um, and so I think that, I mean, I think that's like a general, I guess, suggestion or piece of advice in these kinds of situations. Um, the more you can sort of like reach out to people who you would be interested in working with and like talk through um, your skill set and how it fits with the lab, the better. Um, because I think like you say, there are many kind, many instances where um, expertise in other areas could be pretty useful um, to the specific lab that you're interested in. Yeah, I think the main thing is showing that you are serious about making the switch. So it's not mm -hmm. just like a random thing, but you've thought about it. So that could be through yeah. experience. So like volunteering in a psychology lab or finding a job in a psychology lab or like attending a conference. Um, things like that, I think, are a sign 
are signals that you are serious about making the switch and it's not just like one of like 50 different directions you're considering. Mm-hmm. Um, I have taken two grad students whose undergrad majors were not psychology. Both of them had some kind of research experience in psychology after undergrad. I think in this person's case, also the interaction with, depending on which region of the world they're applying for grad school in, but if they're applying in North America and they're coming from Southeast Asia, I think they'll have that additional um, question mark or whatever people are going to want to know. Like, do you know what you're getting into? Do you know what our like field is like in our, mm-hmm. um, so I think fine. I don't think you necessarily need a letter from somebody in psychology, but I think having a contact who can help you navigate those things and know like, what are the keywords in, in the area that you're looking for so that you can look and sound like somebody who knows a little bit more about how things work within the both the field you're applying to and the region you're applying to, if possible, I think right. would help you. I mean, I don't think those things are absolutely necessary. I do think there are a lot of labs right now who would kill to have a computer science person who's interested in psychology. So I, nice. I don't think it's necessary, but I think those things would help. Yeah, and I, I think, like, what you said, Samin, about... Um, potentially finding someone with a rec who could write you a recommendation letter that's a psychologist. I mean, I agree with the letter writer that recommendation letters can be a huge source of bias. Um, but I think that um, to some degree, if I were getting an application from a potential graduate student who only had letter writers that were not in psychology, I would just be sort of like unsure how to evaluate them. And I think that the letter writers would likely have a hard time um, describing somebody's like aptitude for a psychology graduate program. Um, so even though I think like recommendation letters are often biasing and sometimes not very useful, I think that, um, yeah, I think it would be definitely an advantage in this case to have at least one person who can comment on your psychology specific aptitude. Yeah. yeah, and I think given these skills in particular, even just like going on Twitter and being like, hey, I have computer science skills or programming skills. Does anyone need a computer scientist on their project? I'd be happy to collaborate. Even before starting grad school, you might be able to develop collaborations or connections with a lab, and then maybe that could lead to a letter of rec or at least just advice and help with crafting your application. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the you know this larger point of having, it doesn't necessarily have to be in any one of these ways, but having some reflection that you know some psychology you know because what what sometimes happens and it's probably unlikely that the letter writers in this position but they don't exactly say like you know sometimes people from a who don't have any psychology background but they have some background in another field they think oh i'd like to do psychology and they have what to a psychologist would be very simplistic or naive ideas about like what makes for a good research question or whatever they're like you know, uh, I want to study how, you know, um, you know, nonverbal behavior shows that you're a liar or whatever, you know, they'll they'll just like, you know, um, and so, so if I got uh, an application from someone with really strong skills in another field, and there was nothing in there to suggest that they know any psychology, that would be a concern. So, so yeah, the person asks about taking the GRE subject test. I mean, what I'd say there is like, that could be one way I wouldn't do that unless you've actually like, (laughs) you know, like taken some psych classes and, and feel pretty good that you could do well. Or read a psych textbook and learned this stuff. I don't think I need to have taken a class. Yeah. But, and even there it's, that's more going to be about like having like sort of, a set of like having the kind of knowledge you need to answer multiple choice tests, not, not necessarily sort of critical thinking, but that could like, if you've got that background, that could help. But, um, uh, and then another thing, probably a, a really important place to show this kind of psychology sophistication would be in the research statement. So if, mm-hmm. if I got an application from someone with this kind of background and the research statement had, a bunch of, you know, reflected, sophisticated thinking about psychology, that would go mm-hmm. a long way as well. Um, and, you know, uh, um, obviously, like, it's good if there's other things, too, because people can, you know, have somebody coach them on their research statement. But um, uh, typically, that would be another place to show it. And I think if, if some of that is there, then, 
you know, like if the recommendation letters are from people doing academic research, but they're not psychology, it's not the worst thing in the world. But if one of them is someone you've worked with in psychology, even if they're not the person that knows you best, you know, so if someone has like a, a respected computer science person saying this person did research with me, and that was their like thesis advisor or whatever, and it's long and detailed. And then there's a psychology person, and they're, they're like, yeah, this person worked in my lab, and they're really smart, and you know, they ask good questions. I'd be, uh, that would be pretty cool. That would, that would be on the right path for sure, for me at mm-hmm. least. Yeah. yeah, but I agree that letters of record are super biasing, and I wish they, we didn't have them, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> given that they exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, didn't have them or had at least some version of them that was a little bit better, but I don't know what that would be. Um, yeah. yeah. Like the, the idea of like, I mean, this is, you know, yeah, I just, I don't think there is, I don't know of any like way to get around the gaming. Cause like expert mm-hmm. observation, like as psychologists, <laughs> we use that in our studies all the time, you know, like, uh, um, uh, but of course the expert observers, you know, we make sure, you know, that they're evenly distributed among our subjects and blinding and blah, blah, blah. So it's just a completely different ballgame. But it would be nice to extract that valid information from letters without all the other shit that goes with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, right. Someone needs to, you know, what someone needs to do is they need to draw a directed acyclic graph of the <laughs> factors to a strong letter and then figure out what we need to condition on. Um, that would be really cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> that Good would be really that. cool. Um, I'm, I'm trying to work on my segues. Everyone always I was gonna uh, say. jokes about how we have these awkward segues. And of course, now talking about it is just guaranteed that it's awkward, not that it wasn't already. But uh, mm-hmm. that's our that's our thing. That's our thing. That's our, awkwardness. our trademark. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, should we uh, uh, move on? So thank you. Sure. Yes, thank you, Anonymous from Southeast Asia. And, and good luck with your applications. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I hope we're able to help you and, and maybe other people in your position. Um, yeah, if you are listening and, and you'd like to hear our feedback, advice, thoughts uh, about a situation you're in, about an experience you've had, you can email us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. You can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at blackgoatpod. We're on Instagram, uh, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod. Um, and, uh, you can rate us on iTunes or I guess it's not iTunes anymore. Apple podcasts. Now I haven't updated everything, so I'm still iTunes in some places, but whatever, uh, you can rate us on Apple podcasts or iTunes or, or Stitcher or wherever you listen to us on Spotify. And, and that helps people find us. Um, so thank you listeners. So our main topic, as I alluded to earlier, is uh, we're going to we wanted to talk about, uh, broadly speaking, about sort of addressing causality in um, uh, in non-experimental, non-randomized experiment studies, um, observational studies. As as uh, um, it's interesting, actually, in in psychology, we sometimes use lingo that's totally different from other fields. So I think the the standard in a lot of fields is to call them observational studies. In psychology, we sometimes call them correlational studies, which is to me a little weird for, I can do a sidebar rant if anyone gives a shit. But uh, anyway, um, and the, the sort of the anchor for this discussion, we wanted specifically to talk about um, a relatively somewhat recent innovation. It's not that new, but um, something that's been gaining a lot is uh, directed acyclic graphs are a sort of a tool that's been developed. Um, uh, but we really want to sort of situate that in the larger question of like, how do you do, um, uh, how do you think about observational studies? And uh, um, there's an article by Julia Rohrer, which we will post a link to that uh, um, is sort of an introduction to DAGs, directed acyclic graphs. Um, and their use in, in causal inference for specifically for psychologists. It was published in uh, Advances in Methods and Practice in Psychological Science. Um, Judea Pearl has done a lot of the foundational work on the use of DAGs for causal inference. Um, and I think some of our listeners might be familiar with his work, but I bet a lot aren't. Um, Julia's article is based pretty heavily on, on Pearl's work. Um, 
but you know, there, there's kind of this, uh, um, this old saw that correlation doesn't imply causation. And, you know, uh, the, the world is a lot more complicated than that. But, you know, I think early on in, in our training, you know, often from the beginning of intro to psych, you know, we start telling students um, about the dangers of inferring cause and effect from experiments that aren't randomized experiments. But the, you know, the difficulty is, and I, I like Julia's article because it, you know, it points this out at the beginning that, um, uh, you know, if you just tell people, well, just do a randomized experiment, um, people will often, you know, it's not always possible. And, and you get these mm -hmm. like weird things that happen in, in psychology where people will use proxies, they'll use sort of uh, indirect measures. And, you know, there's this saying, uh, um, like, a, getting a precise answer to the wrong question. Um, right. and it feels a little bit like that when we just prioritize internal validity and don't care about external validity. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of people feel like, well, we need to try, we need to approach this. But of course, there are a lot of dangers when we try to infer cause and effect without the mm -hmm. tool of randomization. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Sanjay, because I do think that like when I was being trained both in undergrad and in grad school, um, the inability to infer causation from correlational data, which is like how that idea was taught to me, was that you can't do this one thing with this kind of data, was treated as like a fatal flaw, essentially, um, as opposed to like one kind of compromise that we make in studies where we're constantly making compromises. So, um, I, you know, I was in graduate school in a pretty traditional social psych lab. Um, and so we would make all kinds of compromises in terms of the way that you would like design a manipulation. Um, but it was always seen as like a priority to have an experiment um, over like that. The sacrifice of not having an experiment was seen as like a special kind of sacrifice, I think, as opposed to the the sacrifices that you make all the time when you, you know, like create shitty manipulations or um, or there are confounds in your studies or things like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that for me, it was treated as a special case in a way that um, reading the Julia um, Rohrer's article, like sort of like made clear to me Um yeah. that we're just like talking about different kinds of compromises. And I, I think, you know, the, um, that the fact that, you know, and this was true when I was in grad school as well, my, you know, there was this very strong party line that if you want to infer cause and effect, you do an experiment and otherwise you just can't. And that had mm -hmm. a, that had a bunch of negative side effects, right? So so one, as I mentioned, is people do externally invalid experiments in order to be able to say I did an experiment. Um, mm -hmm. uh, another is people do observational studies, longitudinal studies, whatever. And it's extremely clear that the only reason they did this study is because they care about a cause and effect question, but then they use weasel words to describe it. They say, we're studying risk right. factors. And it's like, bullshit, you don't care about risk. Like, you're not doing prediction, you care about cause and effect. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you, you if, if you knew whether this thing was a due to a confound or direct cause, you would care about that difference. Um, so that's another thing. Um, and then the third thing is that people do, because we're if we're just taught this heuristic, just do an experiment, there are formal frameworks for conceptualizing and and analyzing cause and effect and causal inference. DAGs are one of them. The P potential outcomes framework, uh, sometimes called the Rubin causal model, is another one of them. There are formal ways to analyze whether you're making good or bad causal inferences outside of an experiment. And because we're often just taught this heuristic, do an experiment, we're not taught how to like conceptualize cause and effect. People do bad causal inference without realizing it. And, and one of the, I think to me, one of the, the clearest examples of that is the popularity of mediation analysis. And so people mm -hmm. think that if they randomly assigned the first variable in the chain that they I've quote unquote done an experiment and then they slap a mediator analysis and they don't realize that half of their inference is observational. Um, that the, the chain from mediator to outcome is quote unquote, just a correlational study or whatever. And it do, doesn't give a shit if you 
manipulated the independent variable. And there's all these other problems yeah. with that. And so I think it's like this teaching people this heuristic just made people. It's like people want to do causal inference. They can't always do the experiment. Well, it's it's you're putting it all in the heuristic, but people don't respect that heuristic at all. Like read <laughs> SGPS. I'm serious. Like just go read Social Psych Journal. Like I read a paper recently where the title was X increases Y. It was an entirely a survey study. The first paragraph of the discussion section was, of course, because this was an observational study, we can't possibly say anything about causal implications. Mm -hmm. The title was X increases Y, and the entire paper was written in causal language. People do not respect this this thing. And you're right, they probably shouldn't, and it would have negative side effects if they did. But it's not. I don't think it's because we teach people correlation doesn't imply causation that people are, people are doing shitty things across the board. Yeah. They're doing shitty things in the correlation, they claim that correlation implies causation too. So they're not, it's not because they're trying to avoid this one potentially shitty thing that they're doing these other shitty things. They're just shitty across the board. I'm going to be like super cynical in this. this no, topic. no, I, I mean, honestly, I think, I think this is how much people want to do it is that increases, which is insane if you step back and think about it, but increases is a weasel word. People think they're not saying cause or they think they're getting away with, or I don't know what the fuck they're thinking because I don't know what's in their heads, but it's like, well, I didn't say, I didn't say the same Then everything word. besides cause is a weasel word. Yeah, yes, okay. Yes, yes. It's, that's why if they had said, if the title had said causes, they would have said, oh, no, no, we can't say that. Let's say increases instead. It's like bullshit. That's okay. like, that, that's, you know, anyway, yeah. So I think, I, I'm actually, I think maybe closer to you or whatever okay. anyway anyway yeah no but uh you know and, and i think everybody's doing a great job <laughs> i don't want to give up on the lesson that like if you're trying to make causal claims from observational data it's super super hard also if you're trying to make causal claims from experimental data it's super super hard but i don't i guess i don't blame the like teaching people that causal claims from observational data is extremely hard i don't think that's the problem the problem is that we're not teaching them that everything is extremely hard and like yeah. You should almost never be confident in causal claims. And yeah, like at, at the very least, like in this paper, for example, and in many papers, there's just such, like every undergrad in my research methods class could easily come up with a third variable explanation. And if any like halfway trained person could do that, then I'm sorry, like how is that not front and center in your paper? Yeah. Yeah. I this just, is... I think it's crazy that so many of our papers would, they would fail undergrad research methods if they wrote those kinds of claims and, mm -hmm. and i think the the one of the things about if you if people learned the formal framework right and i i face this a lot of times in sem class oftentimes the plan fails on first contact with serious like conceptual analysis right and so this is one of the things and, and maybe we'll get into this that i think one of the main takeaways if you if you learn about dags and start applying them is that almost immediately 99% of the time what it's going to tell you is oh shit I can't do this you mm -hmm. know if if you tell people this is what it would take to make a valid causal inference in this situation and you're like well I can't do that it's like well then don't fucking make an inference but now you know like now, now you have like an analytic framework that just told you that <laughs> and this is right. you know this is mm -hmm. the thing and in, in, I deal with this in structural equation modeling and you know, I see this all the time where people it's a very similar thing because they're trying to do causal inference and SEM is closely related to DAGs although they're not identical but um, uh, it's like people will make these they, and they don't even realize they're doing it they'll, but they'll make certain assumptions in order to identify the model and it's like well do you really you know, and, 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 you know, I'm often the, the jerk in the talk that says, like, in order for that causal inference to be valid, like, you would have to say that, you know, emotions don't affect emotion regulation. <laughs> you have to say the right. effect of emotions on emotion, because you have a, a path from emotion regulation to emotion, but you right. don't have a path in the other direction. So by not having that path, you're saying the effect of emotions on emotion regulation is exactly zero. Are you, mm -hmm. you know, is that what you're saying? And they look at me like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, because otherwise none of this means anything. And, and yeah, you know. So I was wondering yeah. if we should define DAGs, but I actually think we don't need to define DAGs. I think like all we need to say for people to, to get, even if they haven't read about it, to show how hard it is, is that you have to have the right underlying causal model for DAGs to work. So you, you're, if your model is wrong, then you can't, then you're right. Like you have to know what could potentially cause what and model all of that 
I have a question, not because I have this question, but because potentially a listener could have this question. I fully understand everything about Dex. Um, but when you say like it, it captures the underlying causal structure, I guess one thing that I don't, I don't understand is like, do you have to capture all of the possible causes or do you just have to like clearly art articulate one causal relationship? Yeah. So without any errors, I guess. So maybe, maybe we should back up. I don't think we're going to be able to give listeners a full tutorial, but just as sort of orienting to people listening, DAGs, directed acyclic graphs are a way of, um, depicting, and then there's a whole framework around sort of drawing implications from a set of causal relationships among variables. Um, and, and so the, but yeah, one of the, there are a couple of requirements and this is, this is really where, um, I think it just sort of, uh, like I said, it, it dies on first contact with any attempt of analysis. And so there's one that, that Julia talks about in the article, um, which is that the model has to include everything relevant. And there are certain causes of things that are not necessary to have in the model. Um, if, if there's a, a, a cause that's like just completely random, unrelated to anything else in the model, that's fine. But you have to include everything relevant. And, and there's sort of within the framework, there's certain definitions of, so if, if there's a cause that affects two things in the model, it has to be in there, et cetera. The <laughs> other thing, and this is where, and, and surprisingly, um, this is, doesn't really come out in the article that, that you, Julia wrote, but it's, this is incredibly important, is that the, the variables in the model have to have a specific point in time. And most mm -hmm. of the things, because the, the whole idea in this framework is that uh, um, arrows can only go in one direction, there can't be any loops. And you have to, so you have to be able to assign each node in this graph, each variable, to a discrete point in time and say which came before, which came after. A huge proportion of the variables we're interested in in psychology, including the ones, and this is you know, a little bit of a critique of, of Julia, uh, the running example in the paper, they don't have a discrete point in time. So um, you know, she uses in the paper the example of intelligence and educational attainment, and she has an arrow going from intelligence to educational attainment. Um, but your educational attainment can affect your intelligence, or at least you, you right. in order to model it that way, you, and, and your intelligence doesn't have a point in time. It's, it's, it's something that exists. It's a, it's a, an attribute that maybe evolves over time, but it's not an event with a discrete point in right. time. But I think she specifies, like she says, we're making the assumption that intelligence doesn't change from childhood, which is obviously like, I think obviously an oversimplification um, but if you make that assumption, then right. But then so, it, so that's, a, sense, that's right? like emotion doesn't affect emotion regularly. It's like, it's not, if, unless you're willing to make that assumption, then the whole thing falls apart. Um, and, uh, um, right. you know, well, uh, yeah, uh, I thought it was telling that even her very simplified example is not plausible. Right. And I think, yeah. I don't think she really denies that. And that, that right. was what made me think like, okay, I don't really need to learn how to do DAGs because I will never be in a situation where it's possible to do one. And I think it's, it might be the case that in some other areas of psych, it might be possible. But I think in like, when we're studying really complicated things like educational outcomes or relationship outcomes or emotions, and things mm. like that, are we really going to always be able to specify all relevant causes? Yeah, that's, that was what I was wondering. And I mean, I guess, I guess you could specify all the relevant causes. Like for instance, if you were to, um, if you were to take like a personality trait and you were to say, okay, like it's influenced by your genes and it's influenced by your environment or whatever, but you have to do it to the point where you can actually like assess those things. So you can't like choose these huge, like huge vague constructs. It has to be like things that you can measure. And that sounds impossible to me. I don't know, but maybe there are, yeah, more, I'm sure if you, if you think of like a, a much simpler kind of inference then it doesn't it becomes maybe more manageable yeah so i i think there are there are a few so i think that the idea of like drawing a complete dag and then estimating everything in it um is pretty in, i agree it's i think it's pretty infeasible for what most most people in the sort of at least in the softer side of psychology most of what we're doing probably in the harder side of it the quote unquote harder whatever 
the fuck you want to call it. Anyway, but uh, um, I think there are, and, and the article, I think, does raise a number of these considerations, right? So, so one thing that it does is it, it provides a framework under which you have to justify which covariates you do and don't include in analysis. Mm-hmm. And this is something that drives me nuts. I reviewed a paper um, a while ago that was, um, it was somebody reanalyzing somebody else's data, and they were saying, I'm going to simplify it, but but the, in general, they were saying like, well, if we do their analysis, but we include these covariates, the effect changes. Um, and, you know, and and first of all, I you know I was like, well, the, the original paper didn't necessarily justify the covariates, but like, you aren't justifying them either. You're just saying we can stick these in and make them go away. And there are that what the the what having a theory of causality does is it tells you which covariates controlling for them is necessary, and which covariates controlling for them will actually distort or break the effect of interest. And it doesn't necessarily, using a a formal approach like DAGs isn't necessarily going to tell you, oh, this is the right answer. It's going to tell you what theory you would have to be able to defend in order to make the choices you made. And then, so by doing that, you then put someone in the position of saying, here are the assumptions you have to be prepared to defend in order to, to defend putting these covariates in and not putting these covariates in. And here's a model under which that would be wrong. And so it, it allows you to sort of, you know, explore theory space. And I think I think DAGs are much more useful in theory space than for most psychologists. They're likely to be in sort of like actually formal analyzing data um, and mostly in telling you what you can't do. And I think they're very, they have a lot of potential in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one thing that's scary to me after reading this paper too is that there's it's not just like, I think they can be really, really helpful in like coming up with alternative explanations and things like that. But also like there's things that you just might never think of, like the limits of our imagination, super scary to me. And this is most relevant in the case of like colliders, right? Which is where like, it's not just what you're controlling for, not controlling for It's If you're conditioning on something that is a collider in your model. So the classic example that I learned about colliders from is like looking at what predicts graduate school success, but you're conditioning on getting accepted into graduate school. And so the things that might be mm-hmm. independent predictors of getting accepted into graduate school might be negatively correlated among people who are already in graduate school. But I was realizing right now, this might be relevant for other people doing meta-science. We're doing this big project where we're coding journal articles and we want to see how things are correlated among published articles. We're conditioning on getting published. It's the same thing, right? Where mm-hmm. Things might be negatively correlated among published papers that are actually positively correlated in the broader research space because we're conditioning on getting accepted for publication. And so it might be that you either have to be strong in this or strong in that to get accepted. And so that creates this negative correlation. And so now I'm like scared that these colliders are everywhere. <laughs> and like, I'm just not creative enough to think of them. That, that is, mm-hmm. um, that's exactly... So, so colliders are, and, and let's just sort of give the, the quick dollar store version of this. I actually, I, I wrote a blog post a few years ago um, about, it turned out to be also known as Berkson's Paradox, but also about colliders, which I didn't know. So I came across the grad school example in an old Robin Dawes article, and I wrote a blog post about it. And then a bunch of people were like, hey, this already exists, whatever. Um, but so what a collider is, is it's a, a variable that's affected by two or more other variables. Um, and, uh, and then what conditioning means, conditioning can mean selection, it can mean controlling for, there's a bunch of things. And so, yeah, so the, in, in the example Samin just gave, um, getting into grad school might be affected by, let's say, your cognitive ability and your motivation. Um, and then if you study people who are already in graduate school, so you're now conditioning on it, you're, you're making your analysis conditional and having gotten into grad school, um, what this thing conditioning on a collider does is it within that conditioned group, it changes the relationship and it makes it typically more negative in a lot of cases. Um, another a sort of popular example is like, you know, why, why are all the attractive people jerks and why are all the like, you know, unattractive people, nice people or whatever. It's like, well, you never considered the people who are jerks and unattractive. And so you're the, the set of people you're like willing to go on a date with is conditioned on them having at least one of those attributes. And so that conditioning induces a negative correlation. 
um, in the subsample oh. of people you're willing to go on a date with. Um, another mm-hmm. example that I had in my blog post when I was in grad school, um, I, I realized that all the places in town with really good burgers had mediocre fries and all the places in town with good fries had oh. mediocre burgers. And it's because I was conditioning on at least something being good enough that I was willing to go to the restaurant. So if there was a place with shitty burgers and shitty fries, I wouldn't go there. And so it induces, it creates the, you're basically like just wiping out half of the scatter plot and you get a negative correlation in what's left. Um, and so mm-hmm. this is one of those things, like you're saying, Samin, I, I had a very similar feeling with regression to the mean, where it's a very difficult, unintuitive concept. Yeah. It took me a long time to wrap my head around it. And as soon as it clicked, I saw it fucking everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you, you see these collider effects everywhere where people are talking about this group and you're, you immediately, all of a sudden, like my, my brain just got into this habit of going, well, how are people selected to be that? Are those two variables related to how people got selected into the study? If so, I shouldn't believe it. You know, I just like, all of a sudden it was like, I was seeing this everywhere and it really is, so, it's ubiquitous because we never use representative samples. So, so like mm-hmm. how people get into our samples, if the variables you're studying could be related to that, you have to be really careful. You're probably going to, it's not just unrepresentative in some general way. It's right. a directional distortion in a, in a sometimes might, a crazy way. But it might be that you generally, genuinely are interested in just that selected population. Like in the case of men of science, we might genuinely be interested in just published papers and making a claim just about published papers. So that leads me to another question, which is like, is it ever the case that we might be interested in the association independent of the causal effects? So let's say I find that like citation rate is negatively correlated with sample size. That's not the case. But let's say that were the case, that papers with larger samples are cited less or whatever among published papers. So, okay, I know I'm conditioning on a collider. Well... Actually, I'm not sure because citation rate isn't something that could predict getting published, but interestingness could be. So I think it, it might there might be a threat of conditioning on a collider there. Um, but maybe I'm still interested in saying, well, w- within the population of published papers, there's this ne- negative correlation. It doesn't mean that those two practices or whatever, the practices underlying those two things are negatively correlated among researchers in general. But is it still... So let me broaden out the question. Are there associations where even if we know that we haven't thought of all the third variables, we haven't thought of all the potential threats to causality, where we can say, no, but the association itself is interesting. I'm not making a causal claim. It's not interesting because there's an implied causal claim. I just think even knowing that there's this association in this population is in itself interesting. So I can think of literature where that's, where I think that's the case. I think in accuracy research, I think we want to know if like self and peers agree with each other or if two peers agree about a person's judgment of a third person um and there i don't think we're only interested in that because we think we understand the causal nature of those associations i think they're interesting in their own right so so i think Mm -hmm. i think that's right if there's a very strong and clear constraints on generality that addresses it and i'll give you an example of of someplace where it's not necessarily a causal relationship which is there's there's some data suggesting that among college professors, um, teaching effectiveness and research productivity have a close to zero correlation. And that is very plausibly because of conditioning on a collider that we don't get evaluated directly on teaching, but we get eval- we do get selected into jobs based on things like being able to present effectively verbally and things like that that are, are sort of antecedents to, to good teaching. And of course, we do get selected on research productivity. And so if there's a collider, if it's the case that that zero-ish correlation among people selected into having a job as a professor is collider bias, and that actually in the pre-selection population, they're positively correlated. Um, so one of the the policy implications that some people have drawn from that is that we should split professors into two different specializations because there is in the sort of personnel psychology literature there's this idea that you want to create jobs in an organization around correlated skill sets so you don't have you don't have a job that requires uncorrelated skill sets because then it's going to be harder to find people who are good at everything Um, and so people took that near zero correlation and said 
we shouldn't have professors doing both teaching and research um, because these are separate skills. We should we should sort of uh, tear down the whole idea of you know sort of professors mm-hmm. being good at all these things. And so I think if if you said, look, this is an artifact of having been selected, and actually in the pre-selection population, these two things are could be positively correlated. Um, that would lead to a very different policy implication. There's no cause and effect in that. It's a descriptive correlation, but it has this policy implication. At the very least, we'd want to understand. I don't know that anyone's directly measured teaching and research ability pre-selection. Um, but but So that, that would be an example of where, like, knowing organizationally that within your institution, the, the people good at one are not necessarily good at the other could have some important value, but, but there's this one place you wouldn't want to take it, which is like saying, oh, we should restructure, you know, uh, um, the, the profession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there, there might be a category of cases too, um, which is different than the example that Samin gave of cases where the association is just interesting, even if you don't know the, um, the, the causality or you, you can't make any claims about causality, which is like in cases where you're using one variable, especially if the variable is like fairly easy to assess, um, as an indicator of something else. Um, so if you want to know like whether, um, yeah, whether somebody would be a good a job, good at a job or something like that, if there's like, maybe these cases don't really like occur, but if you know, if you did know that. It's a logic behind a lot of personality testing. Like the MMPI, I think, was derived in this way of like just purely empirical prediction of like, so the item I prefer baths to showers ended up in the MMPI. I don't remember what it loads on. Oh, yeah, right, right. (laughs) And they don't care why. They're just like, this statistically predicts being higher on this dimension. So we're going to leave it in. Right. I think what's, what's dangerous about this is that often they are conceptually close so like i prefer bath to showers is far enough away that like yeah probably no one's going to be tempted to make a causal claim although yeah that's not that's way too idealistic <laughs> but like if like in nutrition research i think often they say they, they claim us what they're doing like we're just saying people who eat blueberries live longer we're not saying it's causal <laughs> but then like everyone wants to jump to that conclusion right yeah yeah and definitely. so if you're like tempting people with this very juicy causal explanation that you're even if you're explicitly denying it mm-hmm. uh, you're still like people just want believe that they've found something that causally impacts their longevity yeah and i think it does raise sometimes ethical issues like for instance if you find that i always found it strange that um that car insurance companies charge men more than women um i mean maybe that's like a a box that we don't want to open um but like times when you say like well descriptively like men get into more accidents than women so we can like charge them more or whatever i think that um gets into ethically questionable territory but it's really based on the same principle my uh um that that, the example of like the blueberries the nutrition thing the so those are yeah that it's this interesting there's the weasel words issue but then there's also the the sort of like this only makes sense if you think issue. And so, you know, a good test with those kinds of things is to like, take whatever is the causal relationship that that seems to be implying or that people are going to naturally draw from it. Now imagine that that's not the case and some other, so like blueberries and longevity are confounded by, you know, I don't know what region of the country you live in or something, whatever. Um, would you still be saying the same things and would this still be interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, like how many of the things that they're saying in the discussions, and often you see this in the policy implications, right? Or they apply to where they'll say like, and so we should do more research on, you know, uh, um, nutritional antecedents of blah, blah, blah. It's like, now that only fucking makes sense if you think blueberries cause. So like, mm-hmm. just say our theoretical question is do blueberries cause? And then say all the reasons why you, what would have to be true in order for that to be a defensible conclusion and be fucking explicit about it. And if that's a really long list, then I'm sorry, that's a really long list. And, you know, you're, you're, that's life. That's, that's what it is. Right. But so in reality, I'm not sure that that's an option. So like, I feel like there's this debate kind of fizzling sometimes on Twitter about like, is it better to be upfront that you want to make a causal claim or to 
say, mm-hmm. look, we really can't make causal claims, but here's this interesting association. And obviously the best case is say that you want to make a causal claim, but say all the things that are in the way of being able to make that causal claim. But I don't think that's an option. <laughs> like, I don't know if people could do that. They would write very, very different papers than they write now. Like we can't even get them to do much, much easier things. Right. So if it was, if, I mean, so I go back and forth a lot. I'm more on the side of like, say there is no causal claim possible here. Here's just an association. Do with it what you will even though I don't like that either, but I've seen papers that say, of course we do want to make this causal claim, but we can't. And that seems worse to me because they're not going to go and lay out all the third variables, all the possible alternative explanations, all the threats to causal claim. And if they're not going to do that, then I'd rather they stay further away from making a causal claim. Although I do think it's more honest to admit that you wish you could make one, but I don't see people ever doing that responsibly. I don't know. I'm very torn about this. I mean, I, 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 I agree that it's really hard to, I think this is, this is another one of those things where, you know, I, it's a practical consideration, right? That it's just hard to get published. And if you went back to 2009 and someone was like, I want to publish all the like analyses I ran, not just the one that looked pretty. And you said mm-hmm. to them, you know, and they were like, but I'm not going to be able to do that. You'd be like, yeah, fucking sucks, doesn't it? Um, like the journal world mm-hmm. won't let you do that. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know, like, the how do you reconcile the practical and principled sides of this because of what you're saying, Samin, that, that editors, reviewers, readers kind of don't want you to do the right thing. But at the same time, so, and I agree that there are so many papers that have a hand-waving of course, we can infer causality, but then the entire rest of the paper only makes sense if you care about causality. Um, right, I, yeah. I think, I mean, as a reviewer, I try to, as much as I can, um, say that you have to either be systematic or strip it out a lot more. But even the the just like, we're just saying association, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's incredibly hard to write that paper without right. a whole bunch of winking and nudging. Um, right. Exactly. Because it's only like, interesting I, if there's a causal story. I almost think like some of that decision making process has to happen before you even do the study. Um, because I think that you could run a study looking at an association between two variables where it's just really tempting to draw a causal conclusion or where it would only be interesting if you could draw a causal conclusion. Um or where that story is like very intuitive or something like that. And then in those cases, I think although I still think it's the um, responsibility of authors to handle those kinds of situations very carefully, I think you could almost handle it perfectly and still risk people drawing um, causal conclusions from your paper, whether it be like other scientists reading your paper, not carefully, or, you know, the, like the, the way that it gets out to the media and things like that. Um, So yeah, I wonder if to some degree that we have some responsibility to not, do studies on things that are only interesting if they're causal, if we can't um, do a study that would allow us to make causal inference. Except if there's a lot of studies where no single study is going to allow us to make causal inference. So we do want a way for people to do parts of it, uh-huh. right? right? I'm wondering yeah. if like, yeah, the same way we've now gotten, now if you submit a paper that's obviously p-hacked, there's a pretty good chance you'll get at least one reviewer who'll call you out on that. And I think we need mm-hmm. to get to a world where there are reviewers who are like specifically looking out for the validity of your causal inference. And more and more, as I learn more about research methods and I think of it as four validities, you basically need different people focusing on the different validities because it's hard mm-hmm. to keep all in your mind. It's hard to be an expert on all of those. So like I recently reviewed a paper, uh, co-reviewed it with my grad student and we, we thought there might be a collider bias, but we weren't sure. We mentioned it in the, in our review and then the editor sent it to an expert on collider bias who will mm-hmm. name it. <laughs> <laughs> And that was really great. And I think that like many papers probably need like an expert on statistical validity, mainly p-hacking, but other threats to statistical validity, an expert on internal validity if they're making causal claims or winking at causal claims, an expert on construct validity, measurement and the validity of manipulations, and then external validity, which is super broad and complicated, including generalizability, but also like realism and things like that. Um, and I don't, yeah, I, I've noticed more and more that like I tend to focus on one or maybe at most two of those things at a time when I read a paper. And then later I can go back and read it with a different lens and see something I completely missed the first time. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, 
One other thing I'm curious about is I think econ does this internal validity thing better than we do, right? Like I think a lot of this stuff is further along. No. I mean, they, they Uh, do it very differently. So they, um, they do do much more sophisticated in a formal sense approaches. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the criticisms in, in econ that, that comes up, it's a, it's a more sophisticated discussion, but that, um, than than we have in psychology, but people do criticize economists for like combing and scraping for identifying assumptions they can make or using instrumental variables that aren't defensible. And so they're doing it in a more complex framework, but sometimes they're so, so I I don't have a really, I don't have like a global view on like econ good, econ bad, Mm -hmm. but I, I see enough of these discussions to know that there's kind of, they have their own version of mm-hmm. this debate going on. It is true, mm-hmm. though, that they, uh, um, in a broad sense, they uh, are generally in favor of the idea that you can use observational data to make causal conclusions that it's, you know, or at least to try to chip away at them and, and that it's worth taking seriously how to do that in a formal approach. Mm-hmm. I don't know what... Yeah, and I guess yeah. I got the feeling that they expect and think it's fair to strongly critique each other's assumptions about causal claims. So that's part of the review process and part of post-publication too, like that you're going to get people questioning even like very relatively minor and maybe long shot alternative explanations or things like that. Like you're responsible for having thought of all the possible critiques of your causal claims. Mm -hmm. I thought, but I don't know. I don't know what that's based on really. I don't know much about it. No, I think, I think it is, I think it's because they're, they typically get more formal training in some of these causal inference issues that I don't know if the work is better on average, but they're having, it often seems like they're having more sophisticated discussion about it. Um, uh, yeah. than 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 sometimes we are, that's probably mm-hmm. fair to say. I don't know if there are any economists or, or people that work <laughs> adjacent to economists. I'd actually be super curious to hear what yeah. of our listeners have a, a window into that world and an opinion on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we uh, should we wrap up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Cool. Well, uh, um, yeah, this has been fun. I I told my son right before we started recording. He's like, "What are you guys recording about?" And I'm like, "Directed acyclic graphs." And he's like, "No, really, Dad. What are you guys recording about?" And I I was trying to explain to him, and it was just a disaster. But uh, um, I hope our listeners, uh, you all have gotten something out of it. We'll post some links in the notes if you want to do some background reading. Uh, Julia's article is super interesting. I, I highly recommend yeah. you read it. Um, and, uh, yeah, to, to our listeners and to both of you stay well, um, through all this crazy shit that's going on in the world. Um, I wish you the best and, uh, thanks listeners for listening to the black goat. We'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.